Hi, I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg, and we're the co-founders of The Skim. Welcome to our podcast, Skimmed from the Couch, presented by Delta. On every episode, we invite smart, inspiring, successful women to talk openly about what it takes to get to the top and what it's like when you get there. So this is a podcast about the real stuff, the crappy days, the bad advice, the first big career win, and the people who are there for the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. We started the skim from a couch, so we only have one rule on this couch, no BS. We're really excited to have smart, powerful women on this show. Danielle, what are you doing? Sorry, I'm totally not paying attention. I am on my phone, but I am booking a flight on the Fly Delta app. It takes the stress out of travel so you can focus on what comes next. Join us in welcoming our guest. Uh, and I have to say idol. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, this is a big moment. Uh, Tina Brown, thank you Hello, so much. So Tina is a renowned editor who led Vanity Fair to become the powerhouse that it is today. She's also been the editor-in-chief of Newsweek, The Daily Beast, The New Yorker, and Tadler. Wow. She's written multiple books. Her most recent title, The Vanity Fair Diaries. Go check it out. Also, my favorite, The Diana Chronicles. Yes, which we had a book club around (laughs) at Skim HQ. Um, She's now the founder and CEO of Tina Brown Live Media, which puts on events such as the Women in the World Summit. Tina, welcome to Skim from the Couch. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So... I read your your recent book, The Vanity Fair Diaries, and I couldn't put it down. And partially couldn't put it down because obviously, you know, we come we come from media. You're someone that we've looked up to our whole career, um, and you talked about a lot of people that we also looked up to, and you know, our household names. But I, what I thought was so amazing is that how quickly you got your career off the ground. When you read it, it was so obvious there was no stopping you. And you talk a little bit about how you uh, maybe weren't the most well-behaved child. But I want to, you know, I think in those days, I imagine you probably were called someone like a woman who's got balls. (laughs) And, you know, you wouldn't say that today, but you had, um, you were aggressive. You went after what you wanted and would love for you to kind of talk how, who gave that to you? Where did that come from? Well, it was passion for what I wanted to do is the truth. You know, what did you I, want to do? I, I, I was very creative. You know, I really wanted to write. I wanted to edit. I wanted to commission. I wanted to tell stories. And I didn't want anyone to stop me. And what really sort of drove me to become an editor was that as a writer, as a freelance writer, I got tired of having to kind of sell my idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't like going into editors, persuading them to do this piece and then see the piece, title it and you know, present it in the way they thought. After a time, I began to feel I would just be better at it than they were. And so when I was offered uh, the chance to edit Tatler, which at that time was a little tiny, shiny sheet, it was not a big career offer, but Mm. it was a guy who had bought this title, the Tatler, which was an old uh, British title for a sort of old shiny sheet in in the UK, and he wanted to turn it into a real magazine. So it wasn't like it was some big offer, but he said, you know, he he wanted use. How Um, old are you? I was 25. That's crazy. So that's crazy. That's crazy. But that was the same age when we started the skin. Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, it's, in today's it's terms, weird. Yeah. in today's terms, it was a very much kind of what, like what you were doing. I mean, it was a, it was like a blog in a sense. Yeah. And it's a question of what you made of it, you know. And I had a staff of ten and a staff of uh, you know and a budget of a yeah. hundred thousand pounds a year. You know, it was just how, nothing. How did you know, like a staff of ten at twenty five walking mm-hmm. into this? How do you what do you do with that? Like, how did you learn how to do that and how to run an organization? Well, again, I mean. 
I didn't know anything about it. And there really wasn't anybody there. There was a sort of 22-year-old receptionist who became my assistant and who actually then came with me to New York and went to work with Anna Winter and you know, I just spoke to her yesterday. She now is <laughs> working at Sunset Tower in Hollywood. Uh, so I basically just, I think you do what you do at that age is you hire your friends, right? I mean, yeah. so I had, it was like a school magazine in a sense, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, I had my friends from Oxford uh, where I was Well, it's school. actually funny that you just said that because I've actually never hired anyone that I am close friends with. I've always been scared of if I hire someone, I have to feel okay that I could fire them. And I don't ever, I've never wanted to be in a position where um, it would feel too personal mm -hmm. or I would feel like I'd be ruining a friendship. So I'm actually really curious to hear. Well, when I say I had my worked friends, with your husband, like you've worked, like you. Yeah, you, I mean, you know, I had the people that yeah. I knew, let's put yeah. it that way. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly I, I assigned the writers that I knew. Yeah. Um, the actual core staff were more, more people that I'd mm -hmm. actually hired. But for instance, I mean, as features editor, I hired somebody who was a travel agent. You know, <laughs> I just thought that she had incredibly good ideas. She yeah. seemed to have great taste. She had a lot of get up and go. And it just seemed to me that she'd be a great person to get things done. I mean, uh, so the structure of, the, uh, of everything I've worked at actually has been quite unconventional. Mm -hmm. I mean, most editors have certain kinds of classic roles into mm -hmm. which people fit. But I have always wanted just to hire people who are just great at putting things together, great with ideas, great. And I don't think, are they an editor as such? I just think, what are they going to bring in? What's your go-to interview question? Like when you meet someone, how do you judge that? I always ask them about today's news and what interests them. I'll say, you know, well, if you were here to now, what would you want to assign? What are you dying to assign, mm -hmm. you know, from today's news? And if there's a kind of deadly silence and then they go, oh, uh, Mm, you know, then I just don't think they're the kind of person who is going to do well with me. Because I, I like people who are willing yeah. to brainstorm and throw it out. Yeah. You know? So uh, I was uh, I was I was at dinner the other night with two people who had read your book, The Vanity Fair Diaries, and loved it, and we're talking about it. And they had been in the media industry for a long time, and were kind of chuckling at all the stories because they knew all the players involved. What's it like to write about people that? you know, you still see that you're still in very much in the same world with. And I guess, you know, with this most recent book, has anyone been upset? Yep. A couple of people have been. Um, a couple of people said, I never knew you felt like that about this person, you know, who would be very upset if they knew. And one of them was actually the son of somebody who died who said, you know, I, I thought that you liked him, etc. And I felt sort of slightly bad about that. But, you know, the thing about it is, and I said in the diary's beginning, these are written in at warp speed at the time, mm -hmm. you know? And I also say they are fast judgments, sometimes regretted, you know, yeah. that, mm -hmm. that you, you discover people to be better or different from you think as time goes by. And what I said to this person who wrote to me about their father, I said, look, actually, I did come to like him very much. Mm -hmm. But in this particular in period that, moment, that yeah. you're reading about, in that daily cut and thrust, there were, you know, Conde Nast was a highly political place. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of office politics, and I didn't always think he was on my side. And mm. when I wrote my diary, I would be truthful that night. You know, if you'd asked me 20 years later, I would have said, you know what, I kind of understand now why he was as he was <laughs> at that time and actually came to appreciate so it. So I want to talk about, you come from the UK, you, you moved to New York for this insane job opportunity, mm -hmm. and you turned Vanity Fair into the Vanity Fair that we all know of. Mm -hmm. And you write about how how difficult that was. And, you know, a lot of it was, it sounded like fake it till you make it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I want to understand like, who was, who was your go-to 911 call of 
oh my God, I have no idea what the F I am doing. Like, can someone, can I just confide in this person? Who who did you talk to? Well, I had, I mean, uh, writers were always my friends, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Marie Brenner was a writer that I had known from London and she was often somebody that I would call because she became very quickly a sort of a confident friend. Dominic Dunn, who I sort of discovered, and he was an, uh, a, a film producer without a job. You know, yeah, he became I love some, that story, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and of course, my husband, Harry, who mm-hmm. has always been a kind of a mentor um, to me because, you know, he's a great editor himself and would have ideas. But most of the time, um, I actually love collaboration. You mm-hmm. know, I'm a very, very good collaborator, actually. I mean, I, I love just to get a peop- bunch of people in a room and just all kind of spitball, mm-hmm. and I don't care where the idea comes mm-hmm. from. So... Um, the offices that I've run have always been very sort of very much about like, let's pull everybody into the room, let's find out. What, are, what were you like as a boss? Well, I'm very demanding, yeah. you know, and can be uh, very annoying, I think, in, <laughs> it, 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 because because I am very demanding yeah. and I sort of, I reject a lot of ideas. It's always like, well, it's not really, not quite, not this. But at the same time, I'm also very passionate and, mm-hmm. and committed when I hear an idea that I love. And when I get that idea that I love, nothing's going to stop me doing yeah. it. You know, I'm very tenacious when I want to really pursue that idea, that right idea. So you were actually briefly my boss for about a month. <laughs> uh, when I Now she tells me. <laughs> I forgot about this. Yeah, when I worked at the Daily Beast. And I remember the feeling and the change in the office when you would walk through. And it was one of... Tina's walking through, so I better get my shit together. Um, And also, she's here, and I better be on top of things. And I remember you held, uh, I I think it was someone's who was working closely with you, their birthday, or they had just gotten engaged, and you toasted them. And I remember it was the first time I had seen a boss do that and Mm. stop and make the team come together. Uh, And I just think, you know, those, those moments are things that we've taken and put into our company. And I think they get overlooked when you think about, you know, management and all that. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, it's very interesting. One of the very first things I did when I went to the New Yorker, which was an extremely kind of closed culture. Mm -hmm. You know, the New Yorker was a place where people sat in their rooms with the door closed, writing their articles, nobody speaking to anybody else. The office, uh, the editor at the time, William Sean, great editor, but completely sort of hermetic. You know, he was Mm -hmm. shut off from the world. And I, I was kind of in despair of kind of getting any kind of intergenerational or just office collegiality going in this very, very sterile atmosphere. And I had very young children at the time, and I decided to have an office Christmas party and suggest that everybody brought their children and have a, you know, um, secret Santa and, you know, do the whole. And um, some of the people, you know, the editors didn't have any kids, but some of the very older editors, you know, they had grandkids and they Mm -hmm. had, and, and it was actually... Wonderful. Uh, it, it it brought everybody out of their rooms, mm-hmm. and even the most kind of uh, skeptical or hostile of the quote old guard were really sort of charmed by yeah. the warmth mm-hmm. of, of that experience. And we it became an office tradition, and we did it every year. Yeah. So I, I'm a great believer as well in what I call school outings. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it's fun when the whole yeah. Vanity Fair. We did so many great school outings. Yeah. You know, we would all go to the Oscars. It would be so fun. I mean, I would I, enjoy I would that like school outing as well. That was the yeah, greatest. Yeah. Yeah. Would like to do that. Yes. Uh, it was so fun. I mean, <laughs> whenever I see the Oscars now, I remember getting into that limo at sort of at a ridiculous time in the oh afternoon. You know, three p.m. Because it, you know, where you dressed in yeah. your freaking ball gowns, you know, and you got into this stretch limo yeah, and I mean, you I sat think there. If we could do those outings <laughs> at the skim, I think we would be really excited. Yeah. We should talk to HR about that. I think so. <laughs> There's a lot more to come, but first, we have a couple more things to share about our partner in the sky, Delta. 
So people that don't know us very well might not know that we both have a very big fear of flying. Yeah, we're not good at it. And we are both very protective of what we download onto our phone <laughs> other than the Skim app. And we both uh, live by the Fly Delta app. But we're really obsessed. Having the Delta app has actually made our lives so much easier. You can check in. And you can track your bag if it's lost, which has happened to me many times on other airlines. So I'm very happy to have my bag tracker. And we get boarding alerts. So you're not just sitting at the gate, which is really helpful when we're looking at magazines. Well, anyway, so we really like Delta. We do. And the app. It's been a lifesaver. One of my, I think one of our favorite quotes of yours, you've had a lot, but... We saw this one, and I think it's uh, a big moment right now to talk about this. The answer to a creepy man is being the boss. Mm -hmm. I think now you've worked with a creepy man, probably more than one, Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Um, And you've talked a little bit about it, but, you know, would love to to hear from you what, what was it like to work with him, and what did you know or not know or or sense? I definitely think that the only answer to not being uh, bullied and abused, obviously, is to be in the one who's who's got the power, as you rightly say. And, of course, in the case of Harvey Weinstein, when we went into partnership with Talk, he wanted me very much as a kind of trophy journalist who he would have in his stable. So from, from, from his point of view, I was kind of talent. He wasn't really going to mess with me because I, in a sense, had the upper hand. Did you know that when you... Well, look, I mean, I wasn't, uh, you know, a 24-year-old Italian actress with high heels. You know, I mean, you know, I'm sure that I wasn't really his type in any case. But uh, he did bully me horribly in other ways, or he tried to bully me. And it was unpleasant. It was extremely unpleasant. And what I did not like about it was the sense that you could sort of lose your sense of self very quickly in a situation So I'm curious, because when you started working with him, I mean, you were already... Tina Brown, like people knew who you were, like you had already become this kind of institution in your own right. And Harvey at that point, from what we know and have read, he already had a reputation. He wasn't known as like, oh, he's so nice to work with. So what, what did you know going into it? Like, how did you think it was going to be versus (laughs) actually how it was? It was so unbelievable Jekyll and Hyde with Mm -hmm. Harvey, actually. Of course, I didn't know what he was like, or I would certainly never have left the New Yorker to go and work with him. And consider this. You know, he actually kind of lured me out of the best job in journalism to go and do this partnership with him at Talk, which indicates, you know, Mm -hmm. how charming he could be, you know, and Mm -hmm. how very persuasive. And, I mean, Harvey is a great chameleon. I mean, he can can seem to be this great, big, generous-hearted person Bonhomus, you yeah. know, creative guy, Barnum and Bailey, perhaps somewhat vulgar, but at the same time he had great taste. All of these things I thought would be refreshing because mm-hmm. I had spent 17 years in the court of Condé Nast right. and I was kind of sick of being around the Louis XIV atmosphere. Yeah. You know, I actually thought how great it would be to be an entrepreneur myself. He was mm-hmm. going to offer me, a, you know, a piece mm-hmm. of the action, which the uh, Condé Nast would never do. They would only ever pay you salaries and perks. They would never give you any kind of piece of participation. And I began to really hanker for that sort mm-hmm. of participation. I felt that I'd turned around two huge businesses for them, and I ought to be now rewarded in that way. So Harvey promised me all these things. So he seemed to be uh, a guy who was going to give me an exciting time. But almost within 24 hours of going to work for him, suddenly... I realized I'd made, I I knew I'd made the most ginormous mistake within about 10 days, you know, Mm -hmm. because the very first couple of meetings in his office were so unbelievably different from anything he'd Mm -hmm. been like uh, over the wooing process. Well, that's really fascinating to me because I think no matter what level you are in your career, 
we all have those gut feelings of I've, something's wrong. I've made a mistake. I mean, I remember in between my jobs at NBC, I took a job at a PR company for 23 hours. I'd wanted to switch industries. I accepted the job. I walked in, they gave me my Blackberry and I was like, I was allergic to it. I was like, this is not for me. I don't belong here. This was a mistake. And I thankfully got out of it. I'm sure they all hate me still, but I got out of it and I got a job back at NBC and I was very lucky how that worked out Mm -hmm. so quickly. But I also was a junior employee. You are at this point, you know, obviously very, very senior in, in your career, what do you do with that gut feeling? How do you, you know, get really out of a mistake? It's a terrible thing. I mean, it, it, it's very difficult because, you know, obviously you want to make a change sometimes in your careers. Mm-hmm. But but at the same time, you know, when you look at so many people who've made that career change, it can often it, it often goes horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of brave for people who have Absolutely. something yeah. to lose to actually change their careers. In the case of Harvey, it was just that he was so horribly offensive, you know, <laughs> that I had just never, I mean, I was blown away. I mean, I I, I had worked in publishing, which mm-hmm. actually is a fairly yeah. kind of courteous industry, yeah. you know, compared to many. And I had never heard anybody talk to employees like I heard Harvey talk, including to me. What, of all the places that you've worked, and that's actually, let's put a pin in the Harvey one, because I think that would be your answer. So let's just kind of, we talk through like Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, The Daily Beast, Tatler, Women of the World, what what has been the hardest transition for you? What what was hardest? Um, I think, well, each one of them was very hard in their own way. You know, Vanity Fair was very, very hard because I just didn't know America. So I was on top of being... (laughs) Uh, uh, trying to turn this magazine around, which was failing. I also was in a new place, Mm -hmm. in a new environment. I didn't have my network. Mm -hmm. You know, in London, I had a very good network of journalists, editors, you know, people I'd been at Oxford with, people I'd worked with in Fleet Street, all of that. So I had a big network. Mm -hmm. Vanity Fair, I didn't have any any network. So it was really about learning very fast uh, from scratch, like who the people were I could go to. The New Yorker on its own way was another totally different challenge. And that was... The opposite challenge to Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair was about I had to create something from scratch at warp speed. The New Yorker was a Sleeping Beauty cultural jewel, which had to be uh, reawakened, but but not uh, despoiled. You know, so you, you had to make sure that you didn't, in the process of of modernizing it, lose its essential DNA. Yeah. You know, so that that required from me a patience. I, I mean, it, it, it required different personality traits completely. And perhaps mm-hmm. in that sense was the most challenging because, you know, my, my, my real personality is to go in and like, wow, 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 you know, mm-hmm. sort of. Yeah. And at, at, the, at the New Yorker, I had to do a listening tour. I had to really be very careful that I was not going too did, fast. Did you, you know, especially, and I kind of obsessed over, because it's, it's probably most recent in my mind from the book, but the Vanity Fair days, did you have imposter syndrome? Did you did you ever look at yourself in the mirror and was like, I'm like the emperor with no clothes. They're going to figure out I'm like 25 years old or 25 absolutely, years old. Absolutely, I did. And I'm like, what am I, I doing? Absolutely. In fact, there's one incident where I'm interviewing a writer and I'm thinking, I have no credentials to be interviewing you. You know, I, 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 I felt tremendously of an imposter because I also didn't know much about America and I felt that there were all of these huge editors around me because at that moment, um, you know, in American publishing, there were very big figures out there. How often did you go home and cry? A lot. Did you cry at work? No, I never cried at work. So I, I used to get, I used to sometimes wake up in the morning and just throw up. That's what I used to do <laughs> rather than cry. I became yeah. so yeah. anxious. You know? yeah. What was your support system? Like, how did you get through that? <laughs> I used to write my diaries. <laughs> I used to come home and like write my diaries. Well, obviously my, you know, my husband, yeah. obviously, yeah. you know, I mean, he was working in Washington. I would call mm-hmm. him, but I would, I would write my diaries. I would, um, 
I would just sort of hunker down and and just, I mean, to me, work has always been a great antidote mm-hmm. to depression. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. my sort of antidepressive act, action. And so for me, the best way to cure my, my anxiety is to sit down with a huge box of manuscripts and just just do the real grunt work, yeah. which I love doing. I mean, I actually, I'm not a kind of floater above the work, if you know what I mean. I'm actually somebody yeah, who likes, like I like to get into you the like mix. Yeah, I like to dig in, edit a piece, make it better, you know, mm-hmm. blue pencil as it were, and, you know, go through a piece, make it better. And if I do that, it calms me down. And obviously, you know, in the middle of all of this, you are someone who's having a family. Mm-hmm. How did you, I don't want to say, you know, balance it and handle that. But what was it like for you? Because because I think that gives the wrong sense, right? Like everyone's trying to figure it out and, and I don't think anyone has. So I think it's helpful to hear, you know, what it, what was that like? I mean, I think it was all about just kind of warp speed improvisation constantly. I mean, I, I, I actually allowed myself to get pregnant because I thought the magazine was about to fold. And I told myself this would be a nice consolation prize. I can go off pregnant with a nice, you know, uh, payoff and, yeah. and have my baby. Then, in fact, we managed to turn it around and I was suddenly pregnant. Um, and it was, uh, first of all, I just was in denial that I was pregnant. And I just went went on, you know, working exactly as I had, uh, which was probably a mistake because my son was, was pre- two months premature. And that was really what threw me for a loop because I had a child who who needed a tremendous amount of care Mm -hmm. uh, because he was premature. And we went through a tremendous amount of angst and agony about him. And that really was something I wasn't ready for because, you know, you all just imagine that everything's going to be plain sailing. Yes, I'll have a big job. Yes, I'll have a baby. But having a child who was premature and did have problems uh, was for me the major sort of changing mechanism in my life, really. And, uh, And really connected me to a different world of parents who have children who are not, you know, 100% mm-hmm. yeah. right. And, uh, you know, but I, I feel it was a kind of uh, enormously deepening experience. You and know, how yeah. is that, I mean, having that experience, how how does that reflect in the cultures that you've created since then, especially at, you know, a place like Tina Brown? Well, I, you know, which is, I, 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 you know, since since I had a child, obviously, I, I mean, I was the first editor at Condinas to have a child. In fact, you know, in the diaries, I, I, I tell the head of HR that I'm pregnant and she says, that's great. We'll have a chance to test our maternity policies. Um, <laughs> and I was the first editor who'd been pregnant and there weren't really any maternity policies. Uh, I mean, I took some time off, but I didn't really take any time off. I was continuing to edit everything. I mean, even in my hospital room, I was being shown layouts because there wasn't really anyone else to do it. I did then have a bunch of people on my staff who who all had children too. And we became a kind of secret society. It was a very sort of uh, beautiful thing, really, because mm-hmm. there was a kind of confederacy of these women with me who who were having their children. And that became even more true at The New Yorker, where we had, I brought so many women in to do these men's jobs. You know, the men left and the women came in, and they all had young children. So it was a kind of wonderful tribe of us. And it was like we talked about it amongst ourselves, but it wasn't a kind of outward culture. It was just a sort of club of women who were looking out for each other and saying, you know, I've, I can't come in on Tuesday because it's field day and like, but don't worry, I'll have your back. Yeah. You know, it was just very nice. And I also persuaded my mom to come and uh, live in the apartment across the landing when I was at the New Yorker. Oh, wow. In fact, I didn't accept that job until I knew she would come. And she came with my father and they lived across the landing and uh, it was a massive help, you know. I mean, I do feel so tremendously sort of empathetic for women who are single moms or or whose parents live a long way away and just don't have that support Mm -hmm. system. And I don't know how 
how they manage, yeah. frankly, without the support system. And I, I feel kind of impatient at the notion that kind of lean in seems to imply that women are not raising their hands when so many want to, but they just can't. They can't. Right. There's there just nobody there. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm curious, you know, when you kind of look back at your career, and you, you've done a remarkable job of reinventing yourself along the way. Is there moments that stand out where you, you know, whether you wrote in your diary, you looked in the mirror, you told your husband that you're like, I am really fucking proud of myself. <laughs> Actually, no, not really. I'm usually looking in the mirror saying I really fucked this up. You know, so I, don't, I don't, don't say a lot of, I don't, not many times when I've said I'm really proud of myself. I mean, uh, it's not so much about reinvention. It's just the fact that I get, I get turned on by new things. I love the creative part of making something and I'm less good at being a steward. You know, in mm -hmm. fact, I have to be patient, more patient with myself about that. You know, I tend to want to leave as soon as mm -hmm. it's working. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, which, you know, isn't necessarily the smartest way to run a career. You've done so much. What's the thing you want to be known for? Oh, gosh, that's interesting. Um, I, I think I'd like to be known for being, you know, a really a creative catalyst in, in a lot of careers. And I, and, I, and I think I have, you know, I mean, I've, I've found a lot of talent in my life and uh, facilitated that talent. And I love that. I really do love developing other people's careers, mm -hmm. you know, and knowing what they should be doing. And I think that if I have, uh, you know, a gift as an editor, it's, it's knowing which writer to bring in, but also what they should be writing, you know, because frequently writers are enormously talented, but they don't really know what they should be doing. But I do have an instinct for what they should be doing in order to fulfill their greatest potential. What's the story you want to see assigned now? Gosh, What's the, story the next story you would see. want to see? Going back to your interview question, I thought that was so, you know, what would what are you dying to read that you hope someone writes? Well, I am, I am really dying to know what is going on with Ivanka, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I, I really... Uh, you, in terms of who is she? Yeah. You know, is... is, is, is I want to read that too. I mean, I just want to read it because it's too simple to say, uh, you know, she doesn't have a moral compass perhaps or she's an enabler or what. I don't know. I, I just not sure. And so I think it would be very interesting to... I sort of really want to read a novel about her, in fact. Mm -hmm. That's what I read. You should write it. We would read that. Maybe. Um, you would read it. I have okay, a good final question <laughs> that is not at all relevant to why we're here today, but I, you are an expert on the royals. I want <laughs> I to know, what do you think Kate Middleton thinks of Meghan Markle? <laughs> in your I, expert opinion. I think Meghan Markle... I think she's probably... Uh, has the sort of wise, slightly skeptical slightly uh the sort of the you know she's the, she is the queen bee really mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know so she i'm sure she's relieved in some ways to have Meghan markle there uh it's very interesting to compare for instance you know diana and fergie at this right. time you know and diana was at first very very pleased to have fergie there she she helped to distract some of the stress mm -hmm. from the, the spotlight there will always be because it's just natural to be a little competitive about you know mm -hmm. the kind of attention. Mm -hmm. So I think at the moment she's thrilled with all the attention because it takes some of the heat off her. But you know I also think it's important that Meghan Markle will always remember that the Queen yeah. Bee is Kate Middleton. Yeah, uh, because Queen Bees don't really like to lose their Queen Beeness, <laughs> whatever <laughs> they say. <laughs> Do you watch The Crown? Oh, I love The Crown. Okay. The crown is just magic, isn't it? It's so good. Very right. obsessed. I'm well, so obsessed. Which character do you like the best? You know, I loved learning about Princess Margaret. I yeah, she's seeing that yeah. personality. I've always so loved cool. Princess. I knew her well. Oh. Um, and she... I could talk to you for hours about this. <laughs> I know, but the queen. I mean, yeah. I, I, think know, they I don't the think queen I know. so dynamic in yeah. a way I never knew 
never thought of her that way. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, well, Tina Brown, thank you. Thank you so, so much. much. So much fun to talk to you. Could talk to you forever. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.